Professor Spencer, this is our third interview, and today we'll talk about some of your published work. You've had a prodigious output, and in retrospect, I can see that your publishing history reflects the two main strands of research interest that we identified in your second interview. That is to say, an initial phase of endeavour that dwelt on the law of evidence in criminal proceedings, and specifically on issues relating to children. Then, around 1990 and your sabbatical in Paris, a second major stream of research developed, namely your interest in comparison between the common law and various strands of civil law, i.e. European criminal proceedings and the law of fraud in the EU machinery. Could we start with the major work during your time as a university lecturer, which spanned 1976 to 91, and that is your first edition of The Evidence of Children with Rona Flynn, now Professor Flynn. This book appeared in, in the same year as the faculty collection from the conference in Cambridge, which I assume you organised with Rona Flynn in 1990, Children's Evidence in Legal Proceedings and International Perspective. And I wonder if you could say something about how your book and this conference were related Yes, the conference came first, and the idea of the book grew out of the conference. The conference papers should have been published well before the book, and there was a firm of publishers that were going to publish it, but unfortunately they resiled from it for no clear reason. And we ended up publishing it as a DIY exercise and distributing it through the faculty office as cheaply as we could. And we sold a lot of copies that way. We spread the word, but it was confusing because it appeared after after the book instead of before it as it should have been. In the preface, you said that the book is to explain legal rules for the evidence of children for both lawyers and other disciplines, and also it's designed for both English and Scottish lawyers. And I wonder what convinced you that there was a need for such a book. There was much discussion about it in the media and among social workers, paediatricians, child psychiatrists and every other group of professionals connected with the welfare of children. And I thought their growing interest, as well as the interest of lawyers, meant that there would be an, there'd be an interest in the book. And there was indeed an interest in the book. Um, we sold a lot of, well, it was um, Blackstone Press Blackstone uh, Press at the time, and they sold a lot of copies of it. You claim that the book highlights shortcomings in the then present law and hoped it would contribute to proposed changes to be taken in the next few months. That would have been 1990 by the Pickett Home Office Advisory Group on Video Evidence and the Scottish Law Commission. Did it have any influence? I think so. The conference had a key influence on the Pickett Committee because the members of the Pickett Committee attended the conference. And you can see from the report of the Pickett Committee how they were influenced by some of the things they heard there. I think the book may then have helped along the process of 
making acceptable the ideas the Pig Committee put forward. Coming then to the actual book itself, chapters one and two were very interesting, introducing the subject, and chapter three specifically on evidence. So just a few questions from chapter three, where you cite on page 33, Judge Fallon, QC, who proposed the radical suggestion that in the case of suspicious silence, if both parents remain silent, both should be considered guilty. And it seems you didn't think this was a good idea. I thought then, and I still think, that that you shouldn't convict somebody simply on the basis of their refusal to answer questions. But if there's a body of evidence against them, you should be able to take their failure to explain it into account together with the other evidence. The particular problem when there are two people, either of whom might have done it, on their own is you need some evidence actually pointing to the one other than the failure to answer. This was a problem which was eventually um, the subject of a study by the Law Commission and a report. The NSPCC was involved in it and there was a change in the law to attempt to deal specifically with the problem of the young child who's killed and one or other or both parents were involved. Um, there was an important statutory change which created a special offence to cover this situation. And a conference in Cambridge took place about that. I'm now reminded. Right, interesting. Um, on page 37 to 43, I found the section on exclusionary rules very interesting, and some of the quotes from Bentham, page 38, and then 41 to 42, are very apt and, of course, amusing, like the one about a lawyer not living his family life in the same way as he did his business in the court. Um, so when in your career did you become an admirer of Jeremy Bentham? Well, when I fell under the influence of Glanville Williams, he pointed me in that direction. In chapter 14, the conclusion, there are some proposals for reform, and you mentioned that the UK was likely to sign the UN Rights of the Child Convention uh, to put into effect the uh, provisions, but that it would have to reform its law of evidence. So was the UK domestic law actually altered to accommodate the treaty? UK law was altered greatly in the years that followed the conference and the publication of the book. But I'm afraid I don't know whether the changes were explicitly made with a view to complying with the convention. Right. I looked at a review of your first edition by Catherine Greveling, published in the Criminal Law Review, and she said in page 655 of her review that it was a timely and welcome contribution a useful introduction to the topic, and she praises the emphasis on non-English-speaking countries. She said you identify that many assumptions on the treatment of children are unfounded and the trial process is badly suited to their needs as witnesses. So you argued, Professor Spencer, that out-of-court statements should be admissible. 
How has this approach changed, changed in the intervening 30 years? In two ways. First of all, the law on hearsay evidence was significantly reformed by statute in 2003, which made it easier for the courts to hear other people recount what particularly a young child had said had happened. Secondly, a series of statutes in 1991 and 1999 permitted interviews with vulnerable witnesses to be recorded and played as evidence at the trial. And eventually this was extended further to enable even the cross-examination of a vulnerable witness to uh, be conducted ahead of trial. Very interesting, thank you. On page 656, she said that you argued that, quote, the evidence of a very young child is worth presenting, but she cautioned that this, and I quote, ignores the danger of prejudice to the accused. Did she have a valid point? Yes, she did. But the point she makes is a reason for it, treating the evidence with caution, not for just shutting the eyes and the ears of the jury to it altogether, which is what the law used to do. Right. So three years later, in 1993, you produced a second edition, also with Blackstone Press. And in the meantime, there'd been the Criminal Justice Act of 91, very soon after the Children Act of 1989. And presumably the second edition was to accommodate the changes therein. Yes, that's right. Particularly to accommodate changes that had been made as a result of the government's partial acceptance of the Pigott Report, and also some changes made to Scots law as a result of proposals by the Scottish Law Commission. So there are 362 pages in the first book and 463 in the second book. So there were 101 pages added to the second edition. And I wonder if you could just briefly say some of the major changes that appeared in the second edition, which contains 15 chapters instead of 14. Unfortunately, my copy of the book is in Cambridge and I'm in Norfolk and I haven't looked at it for a long time and I simply can't remember. So I think I'll have to pass on that one. Yeah. Um, chapter 13 uh, introduced uh, the idea of stress. And presumably this was to accommodate aspects that had been overlooked in the first. And you illustrate the problems that children still face, for example, mothers not being allowed to be with a child. So could one not extend the concept of child witnesses being stressed to perhaps the whole system, how the whole system could be improved to accommodate stress experienced by adults in criminal yes, proceedings? And to a large extent that has happened. The Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act 1999 replaced the child-specific measures in the earlier legislation with equivalent and improved measures designed to protect vulnerable witnesses more generally, including adults. And bit by bit, this has been implemented and the point that you make has indeed been taken account of. Chapter 15 dealt with proposals, and on page 415, you said that 
what has happened is in part, and I quote, vexing and frustrating. This is colourful language. You said that the government is like a fussy child confronted with an elaborate dish his mother has laboured to prepare. This narrative is very effective, Professor Spencer, and arresting. It's also unconventional. What made you write in this manner? I'd forgotten that I said that till you just reminded me. But I do remember I was very irritated with the failure, as I saw it, of the government or its legal advisers to put forward changes in the law that were straightforward and written in comprehensible language. And I'm glad to say that a few years afterwards, there were some further changes in the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act 1999, which did rectify some of the worst deficiencies in the statutes I was angry about in the second edition. You comment that Parliament did not pass an essential part of the Pickett Committee's scheme, which was to make it possible for the whole of a child's evidence to be taken in advance of trial, apparently on the insistence of the Home Office. This is page 414 of your book. Consequently, England still insists on a child undergoing a live cross-examination in contrast to Scotland. And what do you think the basic reason was that Parliament balked at this kind of change? The genuine fear was that after the initial out-of-court cross-examination, further evidence would come to light which the defence would need to put to the child in cross-examination. So the child would then need a second cross-examination actually at the trial. And the position of the child would be worse than before because the child would have two cross-examinations instead of one one before the trial and one at it. This was all tied up with the existing rules about disclosure of evidence by the prosecution. And the we thought, I and others, that the problems could be circumvented if there was some firm management of these cases at an early stage to ensure that all the relevant evidence was indeed disclosed to the defence in time for them to put it to the child in an out-of-court cross-examination. And a few years later, in 2011, I organised with another psychologist, Michael Lamb, this time a psychologist in Cambridge, where we brought together, again, people from different parts of the world to tell us about how they had actually introduced pre-trial cross-examination of child witnesses and how it had actually worked and how it didn't cause the problems that people were worried about. And I think that conference was influential because a fairly short time after that, the law was indeed changed to bring into effect the provisions of the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act 1999, which permitted it which had been lying in the corner, unimplemented since 1999. Right. It was a change of opinion among judges, I believe. Right. And I think that helps the government to nerve itself, actually, to bring the change into force. Very interesting. Um, I found two reviews of the 1993 book, the first by Professor Jenny McEwen, 
at Keele University. And she, on page 62 of her review in the Criminal Law Review, praised your book for its thoroughness of coverage. She said it was highly readable in its informal style, historical analysis, and tendency to venture into lively digressions. Also, the seamless way the legal and the psychological material was fitted together. And uh, this must have been very satisfying to you, Professor Spencer. How did you manage to achieve the last item? By continuously discussing with Rona Flynn the legal aspects when I was writing the legal chapters, and by her continuously discussing with me the psychological aspects when she was writing the psychological chapters. It was all before email and so forth, so it had to be done by writing hard copy and posting it or conversations on the phone. But it was our aim to try and tell a tale which took account of both points of view at once. Gosh, as you say, uh, quite a feat given that there was no email in those days. I hadn't even thought of that. Mm. Well, life was more complicated then, but you took it for granted and worked around it. You dealt well with the criticisms of the new IE Post 91 videotape interview provisions, except that uh, Professor Jenny McEwen felt that you were too optimistic that victims will receive counselling post-interview. So do you have any reports as to whether this was in fact a fair comment? I'm afraid I don't. I can't really help on that. A second review was by Roger Leng, who is now at Warwick, previously at Birmingham, and in his Civil Justice Courtly Review, he wrote that the first function of the law of evidence is to limit the court's scrutiny to relevant issues, and he makes no mention of getting at the truth. Do, do you agree with him, Professor Spencer? I do. Yes, you don't get to the truth unless you can unless you can limit the discussion to what is relevant to the truth. So I'd be at one with Roger Lang about that. Apropos of the book, he said that it fails to disclose in the title that it's a campaigning book, and he said that it has a reformist mission. Do you look upon yourself as a campaigner for such a mission? Absolutely. I'd spent quite a while being the tame lawyer of a group of people in related disciplines to do with the welfare of children who thought the law was very bad. And they were pleased to find a lawyer who agreed with them and was prepared to articulate their criticisms of the law in a way which lawyers could understand and make sense of. And uh, I, yes, I certainly, it was meant to be a campaigning book. And one of the reasons why there were no further additions after the second was that a lot of the things that we campaigned for in the first two editions had actually happened. So a different book would then have been required and the job, book had done its job, I think. He concluded his review by saying that despite the serious topic, it's an enjoyable read due to the clarity and the power, I quote, the clarity and the power of your arguments. Well, that's very kind of him. Mm -hmm. Just as a final comment, uh, the, there hasn't been a third edition, 
and I didn't have a chance to look at your 2012 book edited with Michael Lamb, Children and Cross-Examination, published by Hart, which I assume contains articles that deal with some new issues. Could you summarize any areas that have improved since 1993? Yes. Um, the 2012 book was essentially the papers at the conference in 2011 that I organized with Michael Lamb specifically to attempt to answer the objections to having pretrial cross-examination of vulnerable witnesses. And as I mentioned earlier, the law was changed by the provision of the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act 1999 that permitted this being very belatedly brought into force. And so, yes, certainly um, big changes in consequence. Yeah. That brings us to your second book, Professor Spencer, which was your 2002 European Criminal Procedures, published with CUP and co-edited with Professor Delma Marti. You mentioned that this is an English version, not just a translation of a 95 French volume and the result of a study group that met regularly between 1990 and 1994. So it was quite an effort and I wonder if you could summarise the background and the circumstances of its writing. Yes. Mireille Delmas-Marty was a very dynamic French law professor with a reformist agenda and immensely energetic. Her nickname among the French was La Locomotive, the driving force. She set up this study group, European study group, because she was very interested in finding out more about how criminal procedure and evidence worked in countries other than France. And I was a member of this study group. And the French version of the book grew out of this study group. Either she or I or both of us had the idea of publishing a version of it in English. There had already appeared straight translations of the book into Italian and into Spanish. I thought the, I thought an English version of it needed more than a straight translation. It needed a lot more explanation to begin with. And I wrote a long introduction to the English language version, which did indeed involve a lot of effort. I also either translated or supervised the translation of the chapters that were originally written in French. And since time had gone on since the original French edition, they all had to be updated. So it was a work which occupied a lot of my time and energy over a number of years. It had 13 chapters, five on national systems. You wrote the English chapter, that was 76 pages. And the second part deals with specific areas where you wrote the evidence chapter. So in total, there were 203 pages from 717 from you, Professor Spencer. In other words, over a quarter of the book written by yourself. 
it's a long time since I've looked at that book too, but I, I think you, you're right. I think a lot of it was indeed um, work that I myself had written. The introduction on page 1 to 13 is very informative and has an entertaining section on the history of criminal justice in Europe and the UK. Pages 25 to 26, um, I was interested in your general point that courts on the continent are active in seeking the truth, whereas English courts are passive in merely judging the evidence placed before it. If this is a true representation of your view, on face value at least, then English justice could be based largely on contingency. Whatever evidence the prosecution manages to dig up, is this true, would you say? Unfortunately, it is. A frequent complaint about criminal proceedings in England are that sometimes very guilty people are prosecuted for or convicted of only a part of their misdeeds. A further criticism is sometimes that courts reach conclusions on guilt without the whole story being put before them. The idea of giving the court a positive duty to attempt to seek the truth means that the court can be active in encouraging the production of further evidence on points that it considers to be important. On page 28, is it still the case that the guilty pleas unknown on the, on the continent such that there are no plea bargains and reduced sentences, except perhaps in Italy from 1988. That's no longer true. Certainly France has now introduced its own version of guilty pleas. It may be that other countries have as well. It's the pressure of business that requires a shortcut to enable the courts to get through the work. On page 37, you pose the theory that with the European Convention, we were or are moving towards a common approach. And on page 38, you mention especially articles 5 and 6, which deal specifically with criminal matters. Do you see this being continued with Brexit? It's difficult to say. We know that the most fervent Brexiteers have an agenda for a Brexit too, following the liberation of our legal system from the Luxembourg court system, which is the liberation of our legal system from Strasbourg, which probably carries with it condemnation of the European Convention on Human Rights. And this has been seriously put forward. And before the Brexit referendum, Theresa May, at that point Home Secretary, made a public speech saying that she liked the European Union because of all the repressive measures in criminal justice that it had, but she really didn't see any sense in the European Convention on Human Rights. For the moment, it's unlikely that even the present Brexit-minded government and parliament will go down that route because the criminal justice cooperation provisions of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement are specifically made contingent on the UK's continuing to 
adhere to the European Convention on Human Rights. And uh, so I don't think for the moment the influence of Strasbourg and the European Court of Human Rights is going to disappear. Right. You wrote the chapter on the English system and on page 42 you summarise the essential differences with the continental system. You say that ours has, I quote, evolved bit by bit over the course of the centuries without ever being consciously planned, whereas all the others, I quote again, originate from some conscious decision to create a new structure and see White's architects as something complete in itself. And I wonder if you could comment on that, Professor Spencer. Yes. When France acquired a new a, a criminal procedure code and a code of criminal law, it was downstream of the French Revolution and all sorts of all sorts of changes introduced experimentally, some of which had worked and some of which hadn't. And there was a feeling that we now had the new order and the rules needed to be written down. If you look at the history of codification of criminal procedure in other countries, the important codifications usually come downstream of some major political event. So the German code of criminal procedure was uh, construction for the unified Germany after German unification after the um, Franco-Prussian War and so on. We haven't had an equivalent event like that in this country and hence we've just patched and made and mended and changed things often without really noticing that we have changed them. Uh Mention is made on page 142-3 of the 2002 Royal Commission under Sir Robin Auld, and this was a comprehensive inquiry, the Review of Criminal Courts of England and Wales, where he made 328 recommendations. So this inquiry was for the Labour government under Tony Blair, and you've mentioned the Auld Review in your second interview, I wonder whether the report failed to consider any points that you'd like to have seen addressed. The report considered all the points that I thought needed to be addressed. Unfortunately, it's not the case that the government then accepted all Sir Robin Hall's recommendations. I'm afraid it cherry-picked the ones which it found attractive and forgot the others. I think that's a shame. I think, as far as I recall, it wasn't a royal commission. I think he was a departmental mandate to produce this report. You also wrote the evidence chapter, chapter 11, and the topic that caught my eye was apropos bad character and the court or the jury not being told of previous convictions. On the issue of considering all the evidence, the German method is to allow hearsay, but to handle it with caution. This was page 619, and I wonder if you could comment upon that. Yes. There, there were two parts in um, your question there, and I'll 
deal with the second one, which is about hearsay and the German approach to hearsay. The approach of English law to hearsay evidence has been to just exclude it altogether, even if it's relevant, but then to make specific exceptions. And the scheme of exceptions got more and more complicated. And eventually the Law Commission looked at it. I was initially a consultant to the Law Commission study on it. And it produced a new scheme, which was more or less accepted by the government some years later, and is the present statutory basis for the law on hearsay. I thought, and a number of senior judges thought, that it was a mistake to attempt to codify our existing system of exceptions. We thought it was a much better idea to allow, in principle, hearsay evidence to be admitted, but impose on the court a duty to seek the original source of the evidence, if available, which is essentially the German system. And the German system also has a safeguard in that um, there is inhibitions on actually convicting people on hearsay evidence without some corroboration from other sources. So Robin Ald was taken by that approach, and essentially that's what he advocated in the Ald Review, to which I was one of the consultants, as I expect you know. Unfortunately, the government in the end listened to the Law Commission instead of to Sir Robin Ald. It made a few token gestures towards what Robin Ald had recommended. I remember um, one writer on evidence described the Criminal Justice Act 2003 provisions on hearsay as uh, serving up the Law Commission's traditional dis dish with a dose of old sauce to garnish it on the top. <laughs> Well, what flows from this, as you point out, Professor Spencer, is that if the accused retains a clean criminal record by such means, his defence always makes a great play on his apparent good character to get off his next the next charge. And I wondered how the legal system can justify this paradox. Yes, we've moved on now from hearsay to bad character evidence. And it certainly used to be the case that um, defence lawyers would adopt this tactic. And the, the Criminal Justice Act 2003 actually makes evidence of previous convictions and other bad character by defendants much more readily admissible than it did. So you get more cases than you did in the past where the defendant's bad character is put in evidence. Should the defence be able to make a huge song and dance about the defendant's good character when actually it simply means he hasn't any criminal convictions? I doubt it. It's the, I can see the virtue in allowing the defence to make use of evidence of positive good character by the defendant. He's done this good act and that good act and He's um, brought this criminal offence to light and so on and so forth. But it seems to me it's not highly relevant that he's simply avoided criminal convictions in the past. Um, 
the cleverest of criminals do manage to avoid convictions for a long time, and it's the stupid ones who get convicted, of course. On the subject of whose job it is to look for pre-trial evidence in the English system, the judge is passive, and you mentioned the proposition of a public defender who's charged with conducting the defence, as you have in the United States and Australian courts. Have there been any recent moves in this direction here? Not very recent. A very limited public defender service was set up experimentally back in 2001, and it still exists, but on a very small scale in a few cases. To deal with a particular problem about uh, pre-trial, the search for pre-trial evidence, it used to be a serious problem that traditionally it was up to the prosecution to look for evidence of guilt and up for the defence to look for evidence of innocence. The prosecution had to dig up evidence of guilt and the defence had to dig up evidence of innocence. But in practical terms, it's only the prosecution and the police who had any spades. Only the prosecution had access to legal powers to search for evidence. And very often only the police and the prosecution had the financial resources to do it. In the years that I've been involved in criminal justice, there's been a big change by the courts deciding that the prosecution have a duty to disclose to the defence everything they found out, not merely the pieces of information that favour the um, prosecution case. And there's a big law of disclosure now, um, all downstream of revelations of some of the worst miscarriages of justice stemming from the situation where uh, the police and the prosecution had evidence pointing to innocence, but basically sh failed to share it, suppressed it. The, it is theoretically the case in our system that the court does have a power to call witnesses that neither side have called, and there are dicta in cases saying that courts should exercise this power if they think some key piece of evidence of use, use to the defence has not been um, brought before the court. But it's rarely used and it doesn't seem to be um, on the legal agenda at the moment to equip the court with any power positively to look for evidence. Right. So 18 years on from this book, would you say that there have been any noteworthy coming together? Now, which book are we talking about? The um, the uh, European Criminal the European Procedures. Procedures. Yes. In the opening chapter of the book, I describe how, over the centuries, the continental systems have borrowed key ideas from the common law, and how the common law has consciously or otherwise adopted similar solutions to many adopted in continental Europe. Um, has this process continued beyond 2002 when the English version of this book appeared? To some small extent, I suppose, in as much as in 
parts of continental Europe, they've moved towards having guilty pleas, which they used not to have. And I suppose in this country, with relaxation of the rules banning hearsay evidence and relaxation of the rules banning evidence of bad character, which are now much more readily um, admissible in evidence than they were, and that makes our system a bit more like the way they do things in continental Europe. So the answer to your question is yes, to some extent. Right. And then finally, as an aside on criminality, this is a fairly important topical issue. Do you believe, Professor Spencer, that not paying the BBC tax the license fee is worthy of being a criminal offence? I don't think so. I think it's a bad thing for the criminal justice system to be um, to be used for, in effect, the enforcement of debt. Remember that there were scandals when Charles Dickens wrote about debtors' prisons and, in effect, criminal sanctions being used to enforce the payment of civil debts. Right. We have the same issue, it seems to me, though on a smaller and less scandalous scale, with things like uh, failing to pay t uh, TV licenses being um, a criminal offence. Not an appropriate use for the criminal courts, I think. Right. So I looked at two reviews of your book, the review by Michael Bolander in the European Law Review. He was very praising. He said it was a very, particularly of the perceptive introductory chapter, which he said gave a valuable interview overview of the main differences of the various systems as well as their histories. But a more forensic review was provided by Joelle Goddard, and she, in the University Edinburgh Law Review, praised the book's detailed index, which made it easy to read, and said that it is an excellent and useful book. On page 487, she comments that reforms of criminal procedure over the EU are gathering pace, encouraged by increased crime and terrorism. This was in 2005. And my question is, did the increase in crime continue and lead to further reforms on a European scale? Happily, we're in a time when crime is not rising like it used to rise. However, increased crime and fears of terrorism and fears of crime have certainly led to Europe-wide changes in aspects of the law. A lot of them at the instance of the European Union, introducing measures requiring member states to deal with a certain level of severity with certain kinds of things like bribery and obviously terrorism, and also by Europe-wide measures making it easier for the different member states' criminal justice systems to collaborate with one another in catching transborder crime or crime where somebody has uh, fled across a national border to escape justice. So, yes, the increase in crime and certainly the fear of crime has indeed led to further changes. On page 490, she points to your mentions of proceedings taking years on the continent 
in contrast to things being rushed here and then being overturned on appeal. And she says this is a serious defect in England, rather the pre-trial process. And she suggests that features of the inquisitorial method need to be introduced into English law. Do, do you agree with that, Professor Spencer? Yes. Our worst miscarriages of justice typically stem from um, inadequate pre-trial procedures in cases coming to court on the basis of incomplete evidence. I think we have improved the position a lot thanks to the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 creating firm rules about how certain offences can be investigated and codifying the powers of the police. And I think we have further helped by the courts elaborating a law on disclosure and obligations of the prosecution to share with the defence the information they have and on a more limited scale obligations on the defence to give advance notice to the prosecution of the evidence that they have. So I think our system has moved more in the direction of the continental system over many years. If you look at the first edition of Archbold Criminal Pleading and Practice, you'll see it jumps right in, basically, and to build up to the trial. If you look at serious criminal procedure books now, you'll find there are sections and sections about what's supposed to happen between the investigation and finally sending the case for trial. So um, I think we are much more thorough now in this country in the preparation of at least serious cases for trial. Um, we still have a problem in um, setting aside convictions which were uh, factually unreliable. I think the position has been much improved by the creation of the Criminal Cases Review Commission in the mid-1990s, but we still have basically a very ungenerous system of appeals compared with um, countries in the continental system. Thank you. The third book I looked at is Your Evidence of Bad Character, published in 2006 by Hart. And in the preface, page five, you say that the Judicial Studies Board organized some seminars to familiarize people into what the Criminal Justice Act of 2003 entailed. And this book springs from the notes that you made for these seminars. What were the circumstances of your selection for this board? I don't know for sure, but I had been lecturing for the Judicial Studies Board on and off for many years on various different topics. So there was somebody that I knew, somebody that they knew, and I think they turned to me as somebody who was a known writer about criminal justice and somebody that they'd worked with. I noticed that Dr. Roderick Monday also participated in these seminars. Did you collaborate with him? They needed extra hands in order to train all the judges over a short period, and they asked me to suggest somebody else who could do some of the work. And I suggested him as a colleague and a friend who would do a good job for them, as I think he did. Thank you. 
on page seven of the preface, uh, as it happened, the Labour government under Tony Blair brought the bad character part of the act into operation in December 2004, before initially intended, which was April 2005. The judges had to handle cases before you'd had time to give your course. And I wondered why this was done. Well, as far as we can see, it was simply in the hope of getting a favourable headline in the right-wing newspapers. Government tough on crime. Irresponsible. Page seven, you said that relaxing the bad character rule was, and I quote, done to increase the proportion of convictions. Is that your surmise or was that a stated policy which succeeded? Everybody assumes that <clears throat> that was the motivating factor. There's no clear evidence that it has actually increased, no clear statistical evidence that it's actually increased the number of convictions. Though I suspect it has in certain types of case, I can certainly think of individual cases in which it was obviously much more likely the defendant would be convicted given that the trial court had knowledge of the defendant's convictions for similar offences, which it wouldn't have had in past years. Right. On page seven, you listed the apocalyptic predictions this was supposed to produce the reign of terror. And although you favoured the provisions, did you in reality have any such qualms and did any of these come true? I didn't have any such qualms and I think I was right not to have them because the terrifying prospect which was predicted particularly by legal speakers in the House of Lords didn't happen. I think the reason that it didn't happen is mainly that the uh, judges glossed the statutory provisions by inventing a rule that bad character evidence should not be adduced to bolster a weak case. It should only be used where there was a body of solid evidence pointing the finger of guilt to the defendant. Um, the government failed, the parliament failed to put a provision to that effect in the Act. But the very first important judgment in the Court of Appeal said that is a qualification. Um, I had suggested that in the notes I wrote, and I suggested it in the, in the Bad Character Evidence book. But I can't claim the idea is completely original because I remember reading it as a suggestion in an article by Professor Bill Elliott many years before when he was talking about the law in relation to admitting bad character evidence. In the introduction on page 18, I was interested in your comment that said there was in fact enough leeway in the wording of the new bill to allow the old law to be applied much as before and bar any bad character evidence that would have been barred in the past. And you argued that this is the wrong way to look at things because Parliament meant to change the law and the courts have a constitutional duty to respect the legislator's will. One agrees with you here, and to pick up on this point, which has wider constitutional implications, is it always so obvious what the legislator's wishes are? 
Is it the court's or parliament's role to sharpen the blurred edges around true intent? That's a difficult question. When legislation's ambiguous, what really was the intention of parliament? Different members of parliament will have voted for it with different understandings about what it was meant to achieve. But where there's a government statement made when the legislation is introduced, explaining what it was meant to do, then I think the courts should surely assume that Parliament voted the legislation through with that in mind and try to interpret the legislation to achieve that effect. So on page 98 and apropos applying the provisions in a practical sense, I noticed that you mentioned that police forces and courts in various areas keep their own records and you muse about checking up on defendants' pasts. How is somebody under investigation in Cambridge to be tagged with a conviction in Carlisle, a caution in Cardiff, or a police investigation in Canterbury that led to trial and acquittal? And you say that the police national computer has certain types of information on it, but that other factors weren't logged. Have things improved since you wrote that, or is it still hit and miss? Things have very much improved. The scandal about the Soham murders back in 2002 led to an important inquiry, the Bichard inquiry, as a result of which there were important reforms to the way that police keep and their willingness to share with other police forces information about criminal offences. So happily things have improved since I wrote the first edition of that book. Now just some specific questions from a fellow expert in the field, Professor Peter Murfield, Emeritus Professor of Evidence at Jesus College, Oxford, and in the Law Courtly Review, his review on page 328 says that he expects practitioners and judges will welcome the book as a useful support and academics will have ample food for thought. He said the book was well constructed, thought provoking and clearly expressed and he liked the style. <clears throat> but I suspect that you and Professor Murfield have fundamental differences on the issue of revelation of bad character data in evidence. And I wondered whether you and he have clashed over the years in friendly academic jousts. I know that Peter Murfield and I have a, a different philosophical approach to the law of evidence, and he's much more traditional in his approach than I am. But I don't think we have clashed, really. I think we know where we stand, and we get on perfectly well as human beings. So I think um, a friendly agreement to differ is the best way to describe it. So as a general observation, how have things evolved on the presentation of evidence of bad character since you wrote this? I wonder if you could sum up the state of play in 2021, bearing in mind your 2016 third edition. I think the law has settled down. All the key doubts arising from the obscurer passages of text in the relevant provisions of the 2003 Act have been dealt with by the courts and the answers the courts decided are sensible ones. 
and they're known to the legal professionals, so they know what the rules are. I think also the big fears that many members of the criminal bar genuinely had when the legislation was introduced have been dispelled quite largely as a result of the courts deciding that evidence of bad character must not be admitted in the case where the rest of the evidence is weak. So I think, broadly speaking, everybody now knows what the rules are and most people accept that the current set of rules are sensible rather than outrageous. Thank you. This up to the next book in chronological order and that is your Hearsay Evidence in Criminal Proceedings, also published by Hart in 2008. And in format and style, it's a companion volume to your 2006 book on bad character. And it was the last book before you retired in 2013. You state in the preface, page five, that your involvement started in 1994 with your being made a consultant to the Law Commission on their consideration of the hearsay rules. How did this involvement come about? I suppose, as with my involvement with the law, with the old review, I was known as a writer about, and um, I'm a lecturer on criminal procedure and criminal evidence matters. And they thought I would be useful. You say um, that, sorry, Professor, beg your pardon. I'm afraid I parted company with them quite early because I found myself in profound disagreement with the approach that I knew the relevant law commissioner wanted to take. Um, it was a bit like, and it was somebody with whom I got on personally well, but his view of the way the law should go and mine were so different that we simply couldn't usefully continue to collaborate. So I did a lot of research for the Law Commission initially, but I didn't have any part in formulating their proposals for reform. So your place was taken by Professor Birch uh, from Nottingham? Yes, that's right. <clears throat> you say that courts can make exceptions to the exclusionary rules if, and I quote, the interests of justice so require. What form could these interests take? Well, in brief, where the evidence is clearly relevant to a disputed issue in the case, and there is no particular reason to doubt the veracity of that evidence. There's a provision in the Criminal Justice Act 2003, often known as the safety valve in section 114 um, 1D, which gives the court an overriding power to admit hearsay evidence that would not be admissible under the complicated scheme which is now set out in the other provisions of the Act on Hearsay. Um, and that the interests of justice are spelt out in section 114.2 with a list of factors the court has to weigh up. And it's a useful and sensible list of factors. Many people have said, why do we need all the complicated apparatus of rigid rules if the court 
has an overriding discretion to admit hearsay evidence when the interests of justice require it, and the statute spells out what those interests are. Couldn't we just dispense with the rest of it? And I've had law students ask me that question, and I think they have a point. Right. We come then to the introduction, which is substantial, nearly 40 pages. And on page 9, item 122, on a general point, apropos the danger of hearsay, it is said that the veracity of oral evidence is guarded by the oath, cross-examination and demeanour of witnesses. And I wondered whether the court genuinely believed that the oath means anything these days. Historically, if people took an oath, they were um, making a conditional self-curse upon themselves. They were inviting God to send them to hell if they didn't tell the truth. And when people really believed that the oath would have that consequence, that made many of them very careful. Few people, even the religiously devout, would believe that that mechanism works today. But I think taking the oath does have the effect of reminding people that if they tell lies from that point onwards, it's a criminal offence and they can be prosecuted, as they sometimes can be. When, of course, other people who lie, like politicians, um, can't generally be. You, you, on page 21, you imply that Glanville Williams was a Bentham man, Ray hearsay evidence, and I wondered whether his teachings influenced your thinking on this matter. Well, certainly. Um, his and Bentham's most certainly um, made me think that we ought to generally admit hearsay evidence when we haven't got anything better. Professor Spencer, the Myers case, which is mentioned on page 26, was a tipping point. Hearsay evidence from engine constructors was deemed inadmissible despite being perfectly sensible because individual engine makers couldn't possibly be witnesses. And presumably if they had persisted with this attitude, all computer data would now be inadmissible. Yes. If the data in the computer was information that had been fed into it by human beings who couldn't be identified, then it couldn't be used if Myers still represented the law. Very happily, it doesn't. Coming then to the conclusions in your book on page 34 to 37, where you gave a provisional assessment of the reform, bottom of page 35 and page 36 you had two criticisms of the old law that were not addressed in the new act firstly the law is arbitrary and secondly it makes it hard for witnesses to give their evidence so read the second criticism you comment that the law commission said that any sensible judge would let a witness do this or that but then you counter with no not all judges or magistrates are sensible and much less some advocates and I wondered if you could enlarge upon that. What I meant to say is that it's no justification for a bad legal rule that a good judge or magistrate will disregard it if they don't like it. It's much more sensible to have a good legal rule which they can follow. 
And you can't expect an advocate for one or other side to agree to waive the benefit of a bad rule if the bad rule favors the side that he or she has been paid to represent. So you followed this with the comment that it's not a good law if a sensible judge has to bend the law. And in the 2003 Act, this is to allow it to function properly. And I wondered how this has worked out over 12 years. Well, to some extent, the Act has improved the position because it's made, it's given the judge this overriding power to admit what is technically hearsay evidence, even though it doesn't go through any of the specific provisions making the evidence formally admissible. And this does give the courts some flexibility they previously didn't have in allowing a witness to tell the whole story in the course of which there come in some things which the witness has been told by other people. So some slight improvement, I guess. So I read one review by Thomas Worthen, who had been at Lincoln College, Oxford, and page 128 to 129 of his review in the Criminal Law Review, he writes that he, well, he was very impressed with your book. He found it, and I quote, insightful and thought-provoking. He said the text was clear and well-organized and contains penetrating comments. He says it is a fine piece of scholarship and that you have deep knowledge of the law. It is thoroughly recommended. And I imagine you must have found these comments satisfying, Professor Spencer. Well, I would if I'd read them at the time. In fact, I, wasn't I was unaware of that review till you just put it to me. He criticised your provisional assessment on page 38, that the Act is a good deal better than it was. Uh, and he asks why you were keen to appear fair in your opening chapter. Do you think, in retrospect, he, he was vindicated in this comment? I wrote the book for use by practitioners and for use by judges to try and explain the law to them and enable them to make it work. And if I started off by saying this statutory reform is complete and utter rubbish and I wish we didn't have it, that would obviously discourage people from attempting to make it work. Also, although I disagreed with the people in the Law Commission who formulated the reform, I did respect their position. And gone are the days when I shoot my mouth at the risk of offending people when I think they've done their best. So, Unlike Professor Murfield with the bad character book, who said that he didn't find them useful, Thomas Worthen liked your inclusion of various appendices. As an early career academic taking his first tentative steps, he found them very helpful, even suggesting they might encourage students to read a few cases. This implies that students were or are not inclined to do so. Was that your experience as well, Professor Spencer? Sometimes it's difficult to persuade students to read cases, it takes time to read cases, and it's always simpler to read the half sentence about the case in the textbook than actually to look at the case and see what the court decided. Um, 
the problem for students is one of time. There are so many reported cases. We've moved into a new era with the internet and the availability of perhaps 10 times as much case law compared with how it was when I started, when the only cases that you ever heard about were the ones that made it into the reported series. We're overwhelmed by them. And of course, our poor students still only have the same number of hours in the day, and so it's a problem. I think perhaps in criminal justice, things are a little easier than they are in civil justice because our Court of Appeal is so pressed for time, it usually has to be concise in what it says. And it doesn't luxuriate like the Supreme Court does, which has all the time in the world for everybody to express their views at length if they want to. Right. Thank you. Uh, just a few points about the edited volume the 2019 Criminal Law Theory and Doctrine with G.R. Sullivan, A.P. Simister, F. Stark and G.J. Virgo, published by Hart in its seventh edition. Uh, how did you first become involved with revising this Simister Sullivan book? You began your involvement in 2010 with the fourth edition. I can't claim any credit for the concept of that book. It was the brainchild of Andrew Simister and Bob Sullivan. Um, they wrote a very successful textbook, which was adopted in Cambridge, and then found themselves on the treadmill of having to produce new editions, which took up a lot of their time. And they wanted to spread the load and get some other people to help them. And they asked me if I would join them and edit some of the chapters. And I was honoured to be asked because it was a well-known book. And I've continued to be involved with it since. But I can't claim any credit, really, except for having updated the chapters that were allocated to me to look after. Thank you. At the, in the preface, at the bottom of page five, it said that systematic reform via a criminal code is a lost cause in England and Wales. And I wonder if you could comment upon that. Well, unfortunately, that does seem to be the case. Legislative time is limited. Politicians want to use it for making legal changes which will answer public complaints about the criminal law. So unless some aspect of the criminal law is publicly criticised, either as enabling obviously blameworthy people to escape deserved punishment, or as punishing morally innocent people wrongly, then the law does not get changed. Um, changes that merely make the law rational and easy for students to learn and easy for the courts to apply, just doesn't appeal to politicians and hence schemes for systematic reform seem never actually to attract their attention. Thank you. Uh, I couldn't actually find a review of this particular volume, so I relied upon one for the uh, fifth edition, and there's just one little interesting point that I'll raise here, 
The reviewer was John Taggart of the Bar Library in Belfast, and he wrote in the Criminal Law Review that the, he mentioned that this book is cited in appellate courts worldwide. And I just wondered if you knew, even though he's referring to common, the common law, whether it's been translated at all. As far as I know, it hasn't. Yes. It's a common law book. And um, I think anybody in continental Europe who wanted to know about the English law would have enough English to get hold of the book and ask hold of the book for themselves. Professor Spencer, this brings us to your 2014 volume. It's out of sequence, but in many ways, it's a suitable publication with which to end this brief survey of your scholarly work because it emphasizes John Spencer in retrospect and introduces us to one of your hobbies. And this is your noted but not invariably approved, published by heart, 268 pages, a collection of case notes that you published on a variety of legal topics in the Cambridge Law Journal from 1970 to 2013, i.e. over 43 years. And this was assembled to mark your retirement from the faculty in December 2013. So presumably it was conceived to show the other side of you from a criminal lawyer, both from a legal aspect, but also purposely including your hobbies. You said it was Catherine Barnard's idea, but from your perspective, what lay behind this project? Catherine was somebody I had collaborated with on a lot of matters in the faculty, particularly the Erasmus programme and the Dublin trees, and then through cells as well. And she, and I think others, had the idea of putting together a festschrift when I retired. And I wasn't enthusiastic about that idea. I know I had been asked to contribute to other people's festschrifts sometimes, and you always feel you have to write even though you haven't anything to say, and I didn't want to impose that burden on colleagues. But when Tony Weir died, Catherine Barnard had got hard to publish a collection of his case notes in memoriam, which I much enjoyed. And I thought if, the one, if there's to be some memorial when I retire, I'd like the faculty to publish a collection of my case notes. I put a lot of work into them over the years, I'd enjoyed writing them. I thought they were um, a significant part of my contribution and I'd like to have them put together as a book. And she took that idea up and organised it and I'm most grateful to her for doing so. So uh, whose idea was it to have Mr Punch on the front cover? I'm not sure, but I think it was Catherine's. Um, <laughs> I think she'd seen me do a Punch and Judy show at a garden party and was unaware of that aspect of my um, personality at the time. And uh, she thought that that would be an amusing thing to put on the cover. It's, it's actually a, a, a beautiful cover. Um, and I have my own copy now, which I'm very pleased about. And I'm hoping I'll have more time to read more of your case notes in, in due course. Um, Professor Barnard lists subjects taught by you over the years, taught, contract, crime, medical law, criminal procedure and evidence, while the book consists of 68 short case notes, plus the long, the strange, the and Graucob, upon which you have already commented in your first interview, because it was your first paper. 
It's an impressive catalogue of commentaries and a wide variety of cases. And I wondered how, at the time of writing them, you chose cases upon which to comment. Well, sometimes the Cambridge Law Journal case committee would contact me and say, somebody thinks we need a note on this case, would you write it? Sometimes I'd take the initiative and see some case I thought was interesting and, and suggest to them I could contribute a case note. So it was from both directions. In retrospect, can you detect over 43 years any evolutionary developments in your method of analysis, your legal attitudes, and your opinions on subjects? I think I've changed my views sometimes about cases that I've written about. Um, have I changed my method of approach? No, not particularly. Or my style of writing? No, I still aim to do what I did when I started, which is to write clearly and only write when I actually had something to say. Happily, my career started in the days before there was publish or perish and endless pressure on people to publish things, whether or not anybody was likely to read them. And it's uh, a luxury to be able to choose whether to write something or not if you're in academic life. In the foreword, uh, you use the analogy that, written by yourself with Somerset Maugham for the early cases, and I quote, when you were a foolish young man, are there any examples of cases that you would fundamentally rewrite now? Well, case notes. Well, the collection isn't a complete collection of all the ones I wrote. It has most of them, but not all of them. And we discreetly left out some of the ones which in retrospect, I thought were misguided or not well expressed. I looked at the last short case article, which is presumably your swan song in the Cambridge Law Journal cases written in 2013 and about incest in Germany and the resultant human rights case. Why did you choose one on this subject on which to draw a curtain on your faculty career. Do you think perhaps this needs to be looked at more seriously? I didn't choose that case to write about as a parting word. And I think I wrote one or two Cambridge Law Journal case notes after that, after my retirement or maybe before my retirement, but while the collection was going through the press. But I wrote about that particular case because I thought it was interesting as raising the issue of whether the criminal law should punish behaviour, which is not obviously damaging um, if it's a consensual act between the parties. This was about a prosecution in Germany for acts of incest between a, a brother and a sister very long separated. And um, should this or should this not be within the reach of the criminal law? What basis should the criminal law punish behavior, which everybody finds shocking, but about which it's difficult to point to any particular practical harm. 
of the 68 case notes, most were presented in a very personal style that strikes a fine combination of erudite authority and pithy humour. Which of these mini masterpieces is your favourite and would you choose to epitomise your distinctive style of scholarship? Well, it's kind of you to be so, be so praiseworthy, so uh, praising. It's kind of you to praise them so thoroughly as that, Leslie. I don't think I have any particular favourites, but somebody wanted to take a find what is the typical example. Perhaps the case I wrote on the need for an appeal court to be, have a power to order a retrial which is on page 61 of the book, is a good example. And I'm glad to say that in the subsequent years, a power to order a retrial was indeed created. Perhaps one of my personal favourites is the case note I wrote about um, civil liability in a farmer for killing off his neighbour's bees by needlessly putting insecticide on his crop of oilseed rape. Um, I thought the decision was right, and I found the facts entertaining, and I, I like that note. That's one of my favourites, I think. Thank you. Because of the cover picture, I read a bit about the fascinating history of the Punch and Judy tradition, which seems to have arisen in post-Cromwellian England in the 1600s, and was imported apparently from Italian marionette shows. Yes, I believe that's so, yes. And um, Professor Spencer, I wondered how your interest arose. Was it um, a, on a Dorset beach that you first uh, yes. made your acquaintance? Yes, I remember watching a Punch and Judy show when I was a very small boy on the beach at Weymouth and finding it was fascinating, as indeed my grandchildren now find Punch and Judy shows fascinating today. Apparently... Um, I, I then got into doing them myself because my mother was interested in handicraft and for some reason or other got a pattern for making Punch and Judy puppets and made some. And then after her death, we found them and I took them over. And then there was a party for children, children of the faculty and children of the college staff at Christmas in Selwyn College one year, and we were asked to think up things we could do to amuse the children. And I thought, I'll have a go at a Punch and Judy show. And I found I could do it. Um, and um, I've continued to do it ever since. I think the high point in my Punch and Judy show performances was when I actually managed to do one in Latin as entertainment after the annual Prilector's dinner in 2016. I had to have some help from a classics don at Murray Edwards to translate that's the way to do it into Latin, but I managed to get the phrase and it sounds quite good in Latin as well as it does in English. Do you know if that's been recorded? I didn't know. Ah, well. No, sorry, I said, has it been recorded? Uh, I don't think so. If, it would have been very bad Latin, but nevertheless, um, it made the prelectors uh, laugh loudly when they saw it. So on a quasi-legal issue, apropos your Punch and Judy activities, 
I wondered what your comments are to the decision of Barry Island Town Council in 2016 to ban the traditional punch and judy show on the beach because it promoted domestic violence. I think that's stupid. Everybody can see that it's uh, not meant to be taken seriously. Um, Mr. Punch is just a comic reversal of normal values. Yes. It's just meant to be light-hearted. Fish Spencer, coming then to the conclusion of this conversation, you grew up in a rural setting and you've retired to a similar milieu is there anything that we can conclude from this about where you are most comfortable with life? I spent many years in Cambridge and was comfortable there. We still have a house in Cambridge to which we return from time to time. And when we do, we enjoy being there. Being brought up in a village and then a small town in Dorset many years ago, at least I understand how things function in villages and I'm aware of the advantages and disadvantages and I think that makes me feel more comfortable here than if I'd lived in a town my whole life and not been brought up in the country. So looking back over your long and illustrious career, where do you think you've made your most fundamental contribution to legal scholarship and teaching and for which you'd most wish to be remembered? Hard to say really, but I suppose improving the rules of procedure and evidence in relation to children and vulnerable witnesses. It was um, in that area that the things that I wrote and said were most taken up and produced practical changes. And it was the reason that the Queen was kind enough to award me a CBE several years ago. So I think that must be the thing I'm mainly remembered for. But it's been a wonderful thing and a wonderful privilege to be able to spend my working life in Cambridge University. And I count myself most fortunate to have been allowed to do so. Thank you, Professor Spencer, and for these wonderful interviews. They'll be very interesting and valuable as a contribution to the archive, and particularly as you are thus far the only scholar in the archive who has spent a career writing, thinking, and teaching criminal law, for which you rightly received recognition with your CBE. It's been a great privilege to speak to you, and I thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, thank you, Leslie, for the time and trouble that you've put into this. I'm most grateful. Thank you, Professor Spencer. So I just off the record, I'm just so pleased to have had this opportunity to have looked at your work, which I otherwise wouldn't have done, to be truthful. Um, and I've so enjoyed and, and been hugely interested in particularly your European, your criminal procedures book. I mean, the introductory chapters, absolutely riveting. And uh, I'm only sorry that it's not possible to require a copy because, it, well, it's out of print and it costs hundreds of pounds as well. I think it's, a, you know, I had a look, it was about six or seven or maybe more hundred pounds and uh, just not available. But uh, I'm going to make a photocopy of the first chapter when I get back to the library. I was 
infurious with Cambridge University Press about that book. Um, when they agreed to publish it, they um, sent me a multi-page questionnaire with my views on what the market would be and how it should be published. And I told them the uh, French edition uh, is in paperback and sells at about the equivalent of £20, I think. And the Italian edition, which has gone through two editions likewise, and the Spanish one likewise. And I thought far more people would want to read an English language version. So um, publish it in paperback and sell it cheap. And then the next thing I knew was that it appeared in their catalogue hardback only at £75. And then it finally appeared on the shelves for £100. And I realized that what the university press does with a lot of books is it um, decides to publish them in hardback only at an outrageous price on the basis that the sales to libraries like the Squire Law Library or probably the ones in America will cover the costs. And they just aren't interested in having the extra work of disseminating a lot of copies. And I made a row with them and contrary to what they expected, the hard copies did sell out and they did produce a paperback. The paperback was um, very much more expensive than paperbacks usually are. And in um, consequence of that, I discouraged people from writing books with Cambridge University Press. I, yes. I go to bottom of the, I go to um, low level legal publishers who want to sell a lot of books cheaply. That's what you need to do if you want people to read what you're going to write. That's why we went to Blackstone Press years and years ago with the evidence of children. Very interesting indeed. Thank you. Well, even the paperback of your European criminal procedures is sold out. There are no it's copies not. available, which is a shame, really. It's a well, wonderful I, book. I think, it, I think it's a shame, and I'm angry about it. When I think of all the work I and other people put in, it's, it's a disgrace. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> well, thank you again. And uh, I'll have this transcribed and then be in touch as before yes. with the transcripts. And uh, just before we say goodbye, Professor Spencer, if you would be prepared to let us have some photographs for your archive, that would be wonderful. And um, you could perhaps see other examples of what uh, scholars have provided um, if if you think that would be helpful, it would be. I'll look on the look on the website and find examples. Shall I? Please, if you look and see, for example, what um, like-minded colleagues have produced uh, that might um, uh, perhaps uh, inspire you to provide some photo. Like, was actually people love looking at images, particularly of the scholar as he, as in in a younger life. Right. and with family and so on. It's all very fascinating to our readers. So uh, I'll see you. what I can find. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you have a lovely weekend. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Leslie. Bye. Bye.